You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Mitä sinä haluaisit tehdä, kun sota loppuu? Soittaa pianoa ja piirtää. Taiteilijaa. I'm Doug. It's California. These men are moved by you, Tom. Sir, it's an honor. These are your men. You make these different boys feel special, beautiful. You might go to prison for this. Aren't you afraid? That's a mighty nice uniform you're wearing, sir. Thank you. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Maitland McDonough. Always a pleasure, Mike. Love being here. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are discussing Dom Korskowski's 2017 film, Tom of Finland. It's a biopic about Tuko Laksonen, Jesus, I'm going to have a hard time with these names, who took the world by storm as the titular Tom of Finland. He created a series of iconic gay images filled with muscular men in tight uniforms boasting incredible cocks. The film looks at Laksonen's life before and after he put pencil to paper. We will be getting into spoilers on this episode, so if you haven't seen Tom of Finland yet and don't want anything ruined, go ahead and track down a copy and come back after you have. Now, Maitland, when was the first time you remember seeing a picture and being able to recognize it as coming from Tom of Finland? I would say that that was probably sometime in the 70s, although I don't think I actually recognized the name. I just recognized the look because it was so distinctive, even within a world of illustration where guys in tight uniforms with big dicks and fabulous musculature, you know, was, was a common thing because if you were a gay man and you wanted to look at erotic images, you know, this was the equivalent of looking at a pinup girl with big boobs and nice round hips and beautiful thighs. You know, it was the male equivalent of that kind of female pinup. And the thing about Thomas Finland's drawings was that they were extraordinarily good. They, uh, his draftsmanship was beautiful. Uh, his sense of proportion 
was beautiful, if somewhat unlikely in certain aspects. He had a real sense of what kind of uniforms really made a man look great. And they're the kind of uniforms that you, know, you later saw in, uh, in shocking rock and roll imagery. I mean, for example, uh, in, the, in the book Rock Dreams, there was that image of the Rolling Stones in, in Nazi uniforms. And it was both incredibly sexy and totally transgressive because, on the one hand, nobody's supposed to look at the Nazis and think, God damn, they're sexy. On the other hand, it's hard not to look at them and think, okay, they've got the best uniforms. No two ways about it. You know, American Army uniforms, British Army uniforms, they, they could not hold a candle to Nazi uniforms, which were incredibly sexy in an incredibly fetishistic way. The stage management of the whole Nazi regime was pretty darn good. Oh my God, they could put on a show like nobody's business. You know, they knew how to set up a rank of men marching you know, down an incredible concourse with those enormous red and white and black flags. All the stuff that Lenny Riefenstahl captured in, in her films of Nazi rituals, basically, Nazi public displays. And again, even today, you cannot look at those films and not say, God damn, if I didn't know who those people were, I would say, sign me up. Except that we do know who those people were and what you were signing up for was something that was entirely different from the sheer beauty and eroticism of those outfits. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Tuco's early experiences happened during World War II and that some of his earliest drawings, once he got more into the Tom of Finland style, were very, very fetishistic of Nazi imagery because I think he was attracted to the Germans and to the, the German uniforms. Absolutely. He was not attracted to their politics. He was not attracted to their anti-Semitism, but he was certainly attracted to the look because it was so undeniably sexy. And after having seen uh, Night Porter and other uh, Nazi exploitation films, I can definitely kind of empathize with that. Well, Night Porter is a really important movie, and the spectator and film discussion about that kind of uniform, that kind of pageantry, that kind of sexual appeal. I mean, Night Porter was a hugely scandalous film, particularly for people who couldn't get past the fact that you know, she was a Jewish woman and who had been in a concentration camp, and he was a, a Nazi who had been a guard in, in such a camp. And a lot of people simply looked at that and felt, okay, that's a completely unacceptable kind of relationship to explore on screen because you are ignoring the fact that concentration camps were death factories, specifically the Jews, although at other groups of people as well, gypsies and homosexuals, for example, something else that comes into play when you look at Tom of Finland images. And all that is true, but the iconography of it is just undeniably completely fabulous. I thought it was a really good movie, partly because although I knew the outlines of of his life, I really didn't know any of the details of it, much of and much of which are explored in that movie. Knowing more about Tom of Finland's life actually doesn't really tell you much more about his art. It gives you gives you some grounding in where a specific type of imagery came from. Ultimately it doesn't tell you the thing that's most astonishing about it, which was that it, it almost single-handedly 
created a gay erotic subculture among men who had nothing to do with Nazi imagery, American men who had nothing to do with the war in Europe, frankly, who were too young to have had any experience of it personally. Perhaps they had older brothers, uh, older relatives of some kind who, who fought in the Second World War. But the Second World War was kind of a distant thing for them, except that, of course, they knew its historical importance. And Tom of Finland's images were incredibly attractive to them. The timeline shifts around quite a bit, and I like the way that they play with time, they play with memories. There's a moment, uh, we, we start with a rapper, and then we go to another moment that is not necessarily a rapper, but it is uh, Tom looking at all of these different men in different uniforms. And then we move into the story proper, where we kind of catch up with him at the war and having some uh, sexual experiences with a, a soldier, another soldier in his uh, group, um, and the way that they would have to meet in the park after dark, and just the way that you know homosexuality was really kept under wraps in, in this uh, time and in this place. That whole section of this film kind of even before he comes up with the Tom of Finland uh, name, which he didn't come up with, but somebody else did, but before he came up with that art style and before he really kind of branched out and started to send out the photo, the uh, images that he would do, that whole section could have been a movie unto itself. And it kind of reminded me almost of like, I don't know, the Danish girl, but good. This outsider and trying to work within the society that really just wanted nothing to do with him. I mean, there's a very telling line, uh, speaking of Nazis, where he's in Berlin and one of the guards or the policemen there is like, you know, during the war, we would have uh, thrown you in a concentration camp and gassed you to death. And it's just like, yeah, this is a really, really harsh environment. And there's a lot of uh, just awful things going on and just so much suppression. And even within Tom's own family, this plays a lot with the, the dynamic between he and his sister and just the way that he he has to keep everything hidden, even from his own sister. Well, and frankly, you know, that was a reality of gay life at that time. And really, up through, I would say, the late 70s, you know, it was a reality that if you were gay and you wanted to have any kind of normal life, a life in which you had a regular job, and you got to socialize just with regular people, if you were gay, you needed to keep an entire part of your life to yourself a part of your life that you then lived in a very small gay world of gay bars and gay parties and gay salons, you know, places where you could be with men who shared your sexual interest, but who didn't necessarily share your other interests, whatever interests you had, interests in art, interests in certain sports, interests in all kinds of things. There was a very specific world that was built completely around your sexuality and then, if you were trying to have a balanced life, then there was another life that was concerned with other things that were interesting to you. And it was an incredibly high-pressure way of living because you were always keeping secrets. You were keeping secrets from your family who wanted to know when you were going to marry a nice girl and settle down, which was clearly not in the cards for many men, although many men did just that, many gay men found a woman that they could live with. They managed to father children and to create some kind of family life that made them okay. And then they would pursue an entirely other life with other gay men. 
sometimes you know they had marriages with women who knew that, who understood who their husbands were, and who, for one reason or another, were willing to capitulate to the needs of it. And there, there were, for example, marriages between gay men and lesbians, where one of them, each of them, was a beard for the other, and they were able to have what appeared to be a normal, normal being a, a word that I'm using very advisedly here, life that was okay with their families, okay with the people they worked with, um, okay with their neighbors, and then they had a completely other life, a gay life. And again, that, that, that the pressure of that was enormous. I mean, it drove some people crazy. Um, it left other people in a, in a state where, they did, where every word came out of their mouths was something that they had to monitor. They had to monitor the way they lit their cigarettes the way they opened the door, you know, they didn't want to do anything that, that said, ooh, that's awfully gay. In this day and age, it's really hard to imagine the kind of life that gay men had to live in that time and in that place. The amount of smoking, speaking of cigarettes, the way that they light the cigarettes, the amount of smoking in this movie is crazy. And I love that it's kind of a stand-in for, well, it's it's... It's a signal uh, when they're lighting their cigarettes in the dark in the park. Um, it kind of reminds me of uh, One Fish, Two Fish. But when they're in the park and they'll light a cigarette and kind of signal, hey, I'm here, then the cigarette case that the the one officer, Heike, gives to Tom, I like the way that that kind of comes back. But then it's also a stand-in a lot of times for uh, sexuality, for oral sexuality, of course. But just the way that Tom is passing his cigarette back and forth with uh, Nipa is fantastic. Yeah, let's just say it. It's a stand-in for sucking dick. And that's something that, you know, it is both concealed and revealed at the same time. And this is one of those things where if you were part of that gay world, everybody knew what everything was about. But, you know, you could go to a party with your mother-in-law and smoke a cigarette, and she wouldn't immediately look at you and think, oh, you know, my son-in-law is interested in sucking dick. Uh, It's really, it's a, you know, it, it was one of the pressures of living that kind of coded life. Well, yeah, and going back to Heike, I mean, you were talking about men who would find women who were understanding that whole section of him having the parties at his house and then how he ends up getting busted by the police and having to be in a sanatorium and disgraced publicly, that that was a real thing, that you were quote-unquote crazy because you were, uh, the word they use in the newspaper in this one, you were a homophile. And actually, you know, I have a book somewhere that's a collection of, uh, of essays about gay men. That, uh, they were all essays that were written in the 50s, and it's called Casebook Homophile, which, of course, means two things there. It means, you know, a lover of other men, but it also means it's a collection of files um, describing this, this abnormality in sexuality. It's, it's, again, it's something that is almost impossible to imagine in, in America in the 21st century, and yet that defined gay men's lives for a great part of the 20th century. You know, in a lot of the 19th century, again, you know, you had a real division between your sexual life and, and your your regular life that allowed men to do a lot of things. You know, if they were straight men, it allowed them to spend a lot of time in brothels with women while still being married to nice women, who in many cases they liked, who were the mothers of their children, who maintained their households, and 
therefore made them an acceptable part of society. But, you know, they were also well known at, say, the Cleveland Street brothel until it got busted and became an enormous scandal in 19th century London. So this this kind of secret double life was always a huge part of homosexuality at that time. And Tom of Finland was somebody who was who was looking to break out of that. And that's that's one of the things that was so remarkable about his images. It's how bold they were and also how happy the men that he drew were. They didn't look furtive, they didn't look dangerous. They just plain looked happy, whether they were, you know, guys in skin tight pants rolling logs down the river or, you know, lumberjacks of one kind or another. They all looked like they were completely happy with themselves, happy with their bodies, happy with their lives. That was something I think that, again, a lot of men found, a lot of gay men found really appealing about Thomas Finland's images. They weren't furtive and they didn't seem dangerous. Even when they were images of guys dressed in head to toe leather, they still had a kind of openness and a kind of happiness to them that suggested that being gay wasn't a creepy thing that you could only do in the dark, even if you in real life were meeting men at night in a park, because that was the only way that you could set up any kind of sexual liaison. A lot of those images suggested that it was possible to be gay and to be happy. You know, there's a a novel that I have somewhere that revolves around a, a, a young guy, a guy who's going to be 18, discovering his discovering that he's gay and trying to make a gay life for himself. And uh, he has kind of a one-night stand with somebody who leaves him a message saying, just so you know, gay doesn't mean happy. And Tom of Finland's images are the, the refutation of that kind of attitude. You know, gay also does mean happy. Well, this being a biopic, you really need that A plus B equals C kind of thing. So the character is portrayed as being closeted, which he was, but not being able to embrace that. The way that he ends up with a, a pretty long-term boyfriend, Nipa, and the way that he will chide Nipa about being a sissy. And like, you know, Nipa wants yellow curtains for their apartment. And it's just like, no, no, only sissies like yellow. And then the way that uh, he keeps seeing the oppression and finally it's after Heike is put in the sanatorium that he eventually kind of branches out and starts to put the, the Tom of Finland drawings out there. And then the movie turns. And I love that moment where we leave Tuco, Tom, and move to the U.S. and we're introduced to the Doug character. That is such a revelation. Once that movie makes that switch... It's just wonderful. And that's all the things that you're talking about as far as the way that his drawings helped push so much forward and was able to give men much more confidence. I think that the greatest line in some ways in that movie is when he's in California and he goes to a party and this party is just full of leather men in various kinds of leather outfits. And the host says to him, you know, these are your men. It's an acknowledgement that although he was using imagery that was already existing, I mean, uniform fetishes certainly were not created by Tom of Finland, but he created a particular kind of fetishistic image that involved wearing leather gear, later on wearing things like nipple clamps, peaked leather hats, wearing those heavy leather boots, and that 
was a look that he actually defined. It was then adopted by a section of the gay community. You know, men who were completely drawn to that, but had never had somebody show it to them before. Yeah, it's it's a fabulous moment when Tom realizes in some way that his his personal fantasies have actually become real. It's become a real part of gay life. It's it's absolutely great. Yeah, it's like he's walking into one of his own drawings when he comes into that that gathering, and there's men that are in cages, there's uh, men who are sunbathing, and yeah, everyone is dressed head to toe in leather. And then when the police show up. And they're just looking for a suspect, and they let these men do what they want. I mean, obviously, things had uh, weren't always like that in the U.S., but they had progressed to a point where this was okay at this point, at least that day, that time. That is such a, a wonderful moment. And when he gets to take a picture of uh, one of the cops, and the cop gives that little stupid grin, it is fantastic. It is. It's absolutely great. And I think it's moments like that brought to life in that film that really are something enduring that, that brings into the 21st century something that was so important and so revolutionary in gay life at that time. You know, it's, it's really easy to mock Tom of Finland images and to talk about fetishism and to talk about you know, having a thing for authority figures and guys in boots and belts and hats and how it's all a, a little personal kink. But it was a little personal kink that became a piece of mainstream gay iconography, if you will. And that's not to say that most gay men want to walk down the street in a head-to-toe Leatherman outfit. They, they don't because they're probably going to work or going to the grocery store and don't want to really be in there, you know, picking up grapefruit, uh, dressed like somebody who's about to tell everybody to hit the floor and strip. But it's talking about making a fantasy image into something that was okay. It was a mainstream fantasy image in the same way that for straight men, a certain kind of pinup image of women, which used to be, kind of a secret fetishistic thing became an okay thing. It became a thing where you could buy Playboy magazine in a local stationery store. You could buy it at a newsstand, and you could have pictures of really sexy girls wearing nothing but a pair of tassels and a little barely there bikini showing most of her assets, and that was okay. It wasn't something weird and dirty that you had to go to a nasty bookstore and put your money on the counter and then secretly take that magazine and stick it between two nice magazines and put it in a in a paper bag and you know take it home in a furtive way. Those images became something that was like, oh, okay, well that's a pinup magazine, that's a pinup girl, you know, that's that's big boob photography. Okay, you like that kind of thing, and that's fine. It, it was a normal, it was a normalization of something that for a long time was purely something secret, something that something you did in the dark. I love the way that his pictures kind of become currency. Like they, they almost become literal currency at one point back in Finland when you see guys who are trading pictures for groceries. But then the way that we have the 
the the Jack and uh, Doug characters and the way that they both have the Tom of Finland drawings in their locker at the gym. And I have to just say, just stop for a second and say that the Jack character, uh, I don't know how you pronounce the guy's name, Jakob Oftebro. My God, that guy is gorgeous. Yeah, that guy is gorgeous. And no two ways about it. And he he looks like uh, one of the, he, again, he looks like he stepped right out of one of those pictures. And again, it's a fascinating thing to see something that, you know, is kind of a fetishistic fantasy embodied in a real person in the same way that, you know, I, went, I once went to a party that had something to do with Playboy magazine, and I can't remember what it was. And there were a bunch of, you know, Playboy girls walking around this party dressed in kind of Playboy outfits. And I went up talking to several of them. And just thinking, okay, I just had a kind of inane, really ordinary conversation with this girl who almost doesn't look real to me, except that, you know, I went for her to get a refill on our drinks, and I know she's a real person, and yet she is the embodiment of a particular kind of male fantasy in the same way that Thomas Finland's men were, and it's kind of remarkable to see them in real life. I like, to the way that they have Kake, the character that Tom creates, they're mm-hmm. interacting and kind of appearing almost in the background at times, and then it kind of moves more into the forefront. It's really nice the way they work that in. Yes, it is. It's really beautifully, it's, it's very beautifully staged and shot. And of course, there's such an unfortunate name for English language speakers, because it just, it's like, whoa, cake, okay, um, what kind of cake are we talking about? And of course, it's that kind of cake, not the other kind of cake. <laughs> Again, things are not perfect in this area of the film either. Once we have kind of, you know, that wonderful moment, everything's going right. I mean, this is a biopic again, so you're going to get that horrible moment. And unfortunately, this is real life uh, that this is based on. So that we have Nipa dying in Finland and we have Jack dying in the U.S. And the quote unquote gay cancer is being revealed. And that is just... we get into some really bad times here, but also very, very life-affirming. I have to say that I was uh, really choked up when Jack was in the hospital. Oh, as was I. And part of that is because I remember that time really vividly. And I yeah, I lost several friends in that era, as certainly anybody who, for example, worked in the arts, worked as I worked in the ballet world. I mean, I remember in 1980, somebody I worked with, uh, who had been a dancer and had been injured out and the company was trying to find a job for him within the company. So he wound up working in the press office where he was unbelievably incompetent and actually pretty, really kind of stupid as well. Um, his name is Bill. And, but I vividly remember him telling me about a friend of his who was sick and, you know, nobody, nobody knew what was wrong with him. And he went to visit him at St. Vincent's hospital within, which in New York wound up being, uh, the AIDS hospital, and I remember, remember him telling me that he went with this friend's mother to visit him one day, and still nobody knew what was wrong with him. But uh, Bill said, you know, you know, I brought his mother to see him, and he was so weak that he couldn't even cry. And that's one of those memories that will never, ever leave me, because it, because again, nobody even knew what it was, but it was so vivid that to this day, it's actually choking me up, which I think you can hear. And that's something that is very much a part, again, of the Thomas Finland movie, because that era in which AIDS came on the scene, and for a long time, nobody had any idea what it was. 
why gay men were getting it, you know, what exactly was happening. And to a lot of people, it seemed like, well, you know, this was the payback for that kind of gay life, that kind of exuberant, happy, you know, having fun where you could have it life. And that was a you know, very vivid part of the 80s for any of us who lived through that and who lived in a community where there were a lot of gay men. So we saw it all very close up. And in the film, they, they position it as your drawings are going to be suppressed again because they think that, you know, you're encouraging this unsafe lifestyle and that you're one of the causes. I mean, it's just, it's almost as soon as being gay was able to eke a little bit out of the closet, they immediately wanted to shove it back in and just be like, no, no, this is bad because you'll get punished and have this horrible disease. Which ultimately we know was not really true. It was mostly, you know, a way basically of blaming gay men for what happened to them. It was just like, you know, blaming girls for getting raped because they wore short skirts. And I'm glad that they ultimately turn it around and end on a very positive note. I mean, the whole thing with the uh, the Jewish printer, uh, the last one in the alphabet of, of printers in all of Los Angeles, apparently, and that scene and then that triumphant moment where Tom steps onto stage and is there surrounded again by his men at this Mr. Leatherman event. I love that they end with a real picture of Tom of Finland. You know, real Leatherman get up. I mean, it's it's kind of fantastic. So let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play an interview with a quartet of folks. You'll be hearing from Jessica Grabowski, who played Kaja, Seamus F. Sargent, who played Doug, Pekka Strong, who was Tuko or Tom himself, and Domi Karukowski, the director of Tom of Finland. And we'll be back with all that right after these brief messages. Hello, I'm Mugumbo, and I am a potaholic. I have been known to consume four or five of these underground commentaries a day, salivating for the next episodes. I have tweeted the creators of these shows and offered sexual favors for validation and conversation. I put these hosts high on a pedestal, but for some reason, I can never climax until I listen to the traumatic cinematic show. What is the difference, you ask? The Traumatic Cinematic Show has my own self-defecating voice on it. Nothing gets me off faster than thinking about myself. So when you are sitting around nude, pleasuring yourself to the voices of strangers, check out TraumaticCinematic.com, because we'll give you a reach around. You can also find us on TraumaticCinematic.Podomatic.com. I'm on the internet. They're the movie podcasts where very serious people talk about very serious things, analyzing them like true professional critics in a very serious way. There are also podcasts where drunk or high youngins talk excitedly over each other about the latest pop culture stuff, dropping references and opinions like they were drugged up skunks. But what if you want both? What about if you want a movie review podcast and website that has a sense of humor, mad songs and weird guests, but also reviews movies with a passion and reverence not seen since Mrs. Penelope Thigh's public access movie Rama show just out of Duluth in 1987? Well, now you can. At no extra cost and with no unnecessary bowel misplacement, it's the After Movie Diner podcast. Available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher and AfterMovieDiner.com. As sponsored by Titty Headlines, Movie Sanctuary and Facial Massage, please take exit 37 off I-98 and ask for Terrence. Let me ask you a question. 
Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Dummy, can you tell me how long has this project been in the works and how did it come about? Actually, originally we started this project already in 2011 and noted to be 2011 was a very different time in Finland than in 2017 or in the world. Uh, 2011, Alex Bardi, who is uh, uh, the screenwriter of the film, one of the producers, and, and you know, we started writing and suggested we why don't Dominic tackle Tom Finland's story, and and we just after that it's been a five years, uh, five six years time of research and digging in, meeting people and. And spending a lot of time in the Tom, Thomas House in Los Angeles and talking to Thomas Freeman Foundation who knew him and just, you know, meeting people who worked with him in an ad agency and um, just, you know, kind of like formulating, understanding who the character is. And I was inspired. I mean, the reason why I then jumped on it in 2011 was I was, I, I was inspired just a very concrete fact that everything what he did, uh, you know, all the drawings, everything he did was illegal. And it was dangerous. And, you know, kind of that want and want for freedom, the want for liberation, want for a certain fantasia or utopia, a fantasy, or fantasy or utopia, I think that was an exceptional character. So it was interesting about the exceptional character that he was. And that was basically the main motivation to tackle the subject. And, and of course, the, sec- the other motivation was to basically do something and something societal. You can't set that as your first motivation because then the film becomes preacher-like. You know, so we wanted to tell the story of this exceptional character and then, you know, it, it became a little political at the same time. It just been like six years of just... just I, I know Tom so well now, just based on talking to so many people who knew him and reading his letters, and it's just... Uh, it's, he's a big part of my life at the moment. You said that the atmosphere was different in Finland in 2011. I'm assuming it's worse, but knowing the way things are going in the U.S. right now, I have to ask, was it worse at the time, or was it better then? 2011, I would say that there was much more a feeling of liberation, and it wasn't. we didn't see that politically important during this film 2011. You know, whereas now, in 2017, it feels like it is politically important that that film is out because of what is happening in the world. At the same time, during the six years, Tom was, you could call it, he was much more niche women in 2011. 
And after that, it's just blown. Like now in 2014, there was the official stamp released by the governmental post. Uh, then there's a coffee brand, there's a linen brand, there's a musical, there's a movie. It just explodes to become mainstream. So at the same time, when Finland, Tom of Finland, has become a mainstream artist, the world is turning back to the dark ages. So it's interesting that this time is the motivations, of course, would alter if I would start the project today. I kind of want to go around the room, and if you could, guys, please tell me what was your first exposure or the first time you remembered hearing or seeing Tama Finland's work? Well, uh, it was in uh, 1999, I think, when I, uh, I can't remember the place where I was, but it was probably in a library. I was looking for some uh, art books and uh, and uh, just uh, trying to get to some classical art, and I was just going through it, and I saw this, I uh, can't remember which book it was, but you could just see the front, the color of it, and I was like, what is this? <laughs> and I uh, just opened it up and, and flipped through the pages uh, with a little blush on my face, and I put it back and, uh, and left the library. That's my first time. This was Peck. Yeah, I would say most young Catholic boys from outer Boston don't have the opportunity to discover Tom at an early age. Uh, so for me, receiving a role for the casting after the casting that was that was my initial experience with figuring out who Tom of Finland was. And just by mentioning the name to friends uh, and family, it, it was no mystery. <laughs> uh, I can't say I have a first meeting because it. It feels like he's always been there, so I have no first meeting. Uh, well, basically, with me, I have two moments of the story, and one is when I was very young, and it must have been probably 90, 89 or 90, we were young boys, and someone had found or stolen a cocky comic book, and, you know, we're just giggling about the large penises, the, the guys, and thinking about whether we should look like those guys. I mean, under not, we know, of course, not save each other, but kind of subconscious thinking. And then, you know, that was the first time that was just touchable. And later on in life, you know, the, because in Finland there was also a law. I mean, 1971 was the, it was taken out of the criminal law that being gay was illegal. In 1981, it was not, it was still 1981, it was considered a sickness. And, uh, but then we, there was still a law until 1991 that you were not allowed to promote uh, gay material. You know, so I think that the imaginary grew in Finland only in the new millennium more. So other than that, it's just been very vague and not, I haven't encountered that much Tom before uh, I started actually doing the movie. Jessica, you said that Tom was always kind of with you. I'm, I'm curious, how is Tom of Finland seen in seen as in Finland? You know, how is he thought of? I can't answer for the whole of Finland. How is he seen in Finland? Uh, but for me as a woman, how do I see him? I look at his work as just how maybe skilled a uh, uh, drawer he was. Like, a drawer? Yeah. How well they're done. Uh, how the light hits the leather and the skin and how it's just so... There's always something behind the eyes. You can feel an atmosphere, a warning or something. It it pulls you in. I think there are two sides on what we've seen, Tom. I think the majority of the country at the moment is very proud of him. And this is a change that's, had, that's happened in the past five, six years. Because there was a big battle around the fact when the official stamp was given, 
2014. It was a big scandal, and people, the conservative sides, were battling that, oh, we shouldn't give this stamp to this uh, homo. And they were saying, you know, we should give it to a war, a war veteran, which is, you know, ridiculous him being a war, war veteran. And uh, I think that battle, when, once the Post and the board of the Post actually voted 6-5, so it was a one vote that you give the, the... And then understanding, suddenly the stamp was sold to 154 countries and sold out. I think it was a major change in how Thomas, after that, perceived, because then a small country understands how big he really is. And then I think that changed that even those who are not fans of the art would see, I mean, I'm not talking about everybody, of course, there's always the Bible Belt, there's always the conservatives, but most of the things people would, you know, very much be proud, and the most common answer in Finland when asked, how do you think about some of Finland? Well, you know, I'm not a fan of the art, but you know, he did great things, so we should be proud as fans. That would be the most common answer. Pekka and, and Seamus, how was it dressing in all that leather for so much of the shoot? <laughs> well, it was hot uh, in, uh, in, uh, in two ways. Uh, it, was, it was great. I mean, uh, we were just talking today earlier with Seamus about the, the sound that the leather makes. And you know, when you're shooting, there's always the sound guy with the boom who's trying to sort of um, um, eliminate every sound except your, your voice. And uh, with uh, being a boom guy on a leather party, I think uh, that's probably a nightmare for the boom guy. I loved it. That's all I can say. I loved it. There's, there's one scene in the film where you actually see Pekka naked and just wearing boots. Mm-hmm. And I watched this last night, and it's such, if I can say so, it is such a dynamite scene because it is absolutely quiet. It's what Pekka mentioned about the sound. Just as he rolls over in bed, you don't even hear the sheet sounds. All you hear is the creak of the boots adjusting on his feet. And it's it, it had it over... Dolby surround, 8,000 watts pumped through the theater. It's, it's beautiful. Dig it. Well, I'm curious, how has the film been received so far? I know that it just got picked up for distribution, but how are these screenings going, and where have you shown it so far? I mean, we've, uh, we opened up Finland and Sweden, the territories, and, of course, at the same time, our Nordic premiere was on our biggest film festival in the Nordic countries, Gothenburg Film Festival. We won the Fipreski Award, which is a very a prestige award. It's the Award of the critic, Critics award prize of the critics. And I mean, it's opened very well in Finland. It was, uh, I think it was, the, it opened second after a family animation, uh, which is a very, you know, it's difficult to beat the family animation. So we are quite proud about that. I think the biggest surprise in terms of the reception is that we've had, our audience has been 65% women based. I, I, I anticipated because it's a very emotional film. It's a very emotional film. And and uh, touching films. I, I do, did anticipate that there is a, a wide female-based audience coming, but the amount of it being 65 in some regions in Finland is actually 75. It surprised me that uh, the women have found the film. And, uh, and I think that's also interesting because women have overall found Tom of Finland at the moment in Finland. You know, you say, there's, there's linens and there are bags that carry Tom's art and and they have a, I would say, that a huge client base uh, with uh, women. And also, Finns are not um, that accustomed to show emotions or, like, big emotions. And on both of our premieres in Finland, in Dulu and Helsinki, we got standing ovations, and that is very 
That is very rare. That never happens. No. I mean, it happens in Cannes, it happens in France, where there's a tradition of that. But in Finland, a person rising up and clapping and basically just, you know, saying that it's a good film. Because yeah. then it is, uh, I love the fact that there's an old joke that if a Finn fin sees a masterpiece as a movie, you know, he wants to go, go goes and watch a Stanley Kubrick film, he will praise it as, or she will praise it as, well, it wasn't shite all the time. <laughs> so, you know, that's the way we Finns are, and yeah. I think that uh, the standing ovations and, and what we had also in Sweden, we, we received in the premiere and standing ovations, it's just, it's just a fabulous feeling. I'm curious, can you guys tell me how the casting process was? Because I'm sure that there was probably one eye to performance and maybe one eye or maybe half an eye to actual physical resemblance. Because I have to say, Pekka, you really pulled off Tom's look, though I've seen pictures of you where you don't look like him at all. Well, I'm, uh, I'm so happy to hear that. And uh, it's, uh, I think I was chosen just because of my face. <laughs> and uh, and uh, then I started to learn acting after that. So, no, But it, it was an honor. And uh, we had a really nice casting process with, with Domitiv. And uh, it took, a, took, a, took a month maybe and uh, met up with uh, different, uh, different actors. But then uh, in the last... Uh, audition uh, I met uh, I was playing with uh, Lauri Tilkanen who's doing Nipa in, in the movie and uh, I mean I, I don't know Dom has said later that he, he just knew it at the moment that there's there's the guys but I also felt it with Lauri that uh, it's really easy and uh, when, uh, I mean uh, then I heard later that Jessica was going to play my sister and uh, I've known her for a few years and she's uh, an amazing actress and an uh, amazing person so it was it was Great, and then just to meet this uh, crazy Boston uh, Seamus sergeant. I mean, uh, often you get to know people when you, when you when you're making a movie, and then you sort of uh, make a commitment that hey, let's let's uh, let's be in touch later, and you never do. But with this guy, I mean, uh, he's always sending me strange videos and stuff. So, and I'm with, uh, with bananas. I've seen, uh, I've seen one, one of them. He's a lovely guy, and we had a, we had a blast during during the shoot. So, and, uh, with bananas, and the bananas was not sexual. It was just him being a gorilla and uh, <laughs> without clothes. So, uh, I think that's also a lot. Of, uh, but the casting process. I mean, we had a very classical casting and audition process in Finland first with. Uh, with choosing Tom and Nipa, I said, you know, I, I, I wanted to have the couple, so the chemistry, because it's also a love story. So the love story works. And um, so I wanted to find a couple of Nipa and, and Tom. And when, when, when Lauri and Pekka did their, you know, I was trying out different men with different men. And when Lauri and Pekka did their kind of day or scenes, I just felt this is a couple. And then, you know, you think that, okay, let's keep this uh, casting process as, you know, as a classical, and then you get the uh, casting videos of Seamus. The first one, the first one is... Uh, it will be on YouTube. Yeah, the first one is him in a hotel, as he's also uh, in a band, he's touring somewhere, and then he's in the hotel, he's, you know, that, not doing the scene at all that was sent to him, you know, just, he's just throwing pillows and dancing and jumping on the bed. Later, I found out that the, the 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 video where he did the scene was never sent to me. I just I, I just got the, him. Oh, the one wild take, and I just got the wild take. I was like, okay, who is this guy? Then he well, let's do the second round. My assistant liked it. My assistant, assistant liked it, and uh, so I did the second round with Seamus. And then his second improv is him being. Uh, 
in the toilet and he's talking about shaving his balls and uh, with a very, very uh, gay manner. And, uh, and, and, he's, uh, and it's obvious that the guy behind the camera, his friend, is, uh, is a gay man and they have this wonderful, wonderful uh, chemistry. You can't see the guy because he's shooting Seamus. And then you understand that this actor at the same time, okay, he's courageous, he's shameless like uh, the, the real life character is, and, and he's prepared to do anything. And, you know, and uh, he didn't actually shave his balls, it's just talking about it. He's uh, quite nude in that, but... How do you know? Uh, this is true, it might happen, it happened afterwards. And I think like, you know, that, okay, this is a sense of energy. I mean, even though it's a comical, you think it's comical, and it is, it's, it's funny, you laugh when you're watching the video, but there's a sense of truth in it. You know, there's a sense of truth that, okay, this, he can be courageous, he can be courageous as an actor, and, and, uh, and he just felt that, okay, this is the guy, you know, that's the guy. He has the soul and energy of, of the character he portrays. I don't think Seamus and Jessica actually share any scenes together, so did you guys even meet on the set, or was that a little bit later on? Yeah, it was a moment later on, gladly. <laughs> yeah, we met at the premiere. At, uh, at the premiere in Helsinki. Yeah. It's always got to be a little surreal. Hey, we're in the same movie together. Yeah, but you know, honestly, Michael, that that's also part of the gift of, the, of, of doing this and being a performer. It, when you really have a rocket ensemble... Uh, to meet somebody who's such an integral part of the film, uh, Jessica, to, to meet her at a premiere after the film's already been shot, and to have a connection, even though you've never met through this wondrous uh, story, that's really special. You know, when Pekka was saying earlier that the people that you meet so many people in the industry that you often don't keep in touch with, and every now and then you, you find a few gems that you do. Uh, that's, that's part of the huge gratitude of being in this movie also. You know, uh, I feel like we've constructed friendships uh, beyond the, the screen, you know, and that's uh, it's pretty remarkable. back when we were talking about Tom of Finland. Did you have a chance to watch Daddy and the Muscle Academy, the documentary about Tom of Finland? Well, again, I found it absolutely fascinating. I mean, you know, Tom of Finland is uh, Tuco. Tuco is an interesting person, and this persona, 
Kama Finland that he created for himself is absolutely fascinating and one that connected in a really profound way with a certain section of the gay community. Yeah, I thought the documentary was really well done. I liked the way that they would have those almost like an audio vignette, uh, the, the montage of the guys saying, you know, I'm a Tom's man, and then actually interviewing these guys who were affected by his artwork was, I thought, really, really effective. It was, because it showed, first of all, that people's fantasy images that they think are entirely their own often aren't. They're images that other people connect with and that look at, they look at and say, yeah, I'm a Tom of Finland man. You know, that also is the kind of thing that turns me on, the kind of thing that I want to be with and the kind of thing that I want to be. And, uh, and that is absolutely fascinating. And it's fascinating, I think, in the same way, it's fascinating to see girls who have decided that, you know, they want to be playgirls, playgirls, you know, playmates, and they want to have that kind of look, that all-American, but sexy, ready for anything, but not dirty. And so have these very particular wardrobes and these very particular hairstyles and a way of carrying themselves that is very, very precise and very influenced by a set of images that they saw in a magazine and realized, yes, that's the person I want to be. It's great. In the same way, it's it's fascinating to see anybody discover a look that speaks to them. And, you know, the most extreme form of that, I think, is when you go to conventions and you see people who really want to be dressed like Jedi warriors and or who really want to be you know, some other kind of fantasy figures. And on the one hand, it's easy to say, oh, my God, that's so childish. And, you know, that really is is such a ridiculous thing for a grown-up person to be doing. But on the other hand, it's really kind of profound and moving that people have found this image. And once upon a time, it probably would have been they wanted to be knights wearing silver armor or... They wanted to be um, some other kind. They wanted to be Roman warriors who, by the way, had the best, most fetishistic get-ups ever. I mean, those, those lace-up sandals and those little leather skirts. And, I mean, it was just absolutely fabulous, you know, all designed for you to want to get your hands under those skirts and, you know, see what was going on there. It's really kind of great to have this sort of fantasy material that very much connects with things that people are thinking and, and gives a form to it that they can assume and that they can have fun with. Why people go to conventions. They go to conventions because part of the fun of it is that you can play out this fantasy life, this fantasy imagery, and nobody's going to judge you and say, you're weird, you're a geek, what, what on earth is wrong with you that you want to do this? You're surrounded by people who completely understand why you would want to do this. Or why you could be a perfectly ordinary-looking businessman, you know, looking all sharp in your suit, and be wearing frilly ladies' underwear underneath, because that's something that speaks to you sexually. And it's like, no, it's not a joke. It's part of people's lives. Yeah, this documentary, 1991, it was made. And the thing that I liked about it, I think even more than Tom of Finland, I did like Tom of Finland a lot as a biopic, I liked how much they spent on the art itself and that we get really got to see some of the artwork and those little sections where it was narrated, like the story of uh, Kaki uh, in the Wild West <laughs> was, was pretty great. And the drawings themselves, I mean, it was just 
captivating to see how much detail he put into it and just to see the the pencil marks and just i mean god the the way that he shades every muscle on a guy's chest they're gorgeous drawings they are they're extraordinary and you know you speak about the old west that's that's an incredible kind of fantasy material that you see a lot in in 1960s and 70s gay erotic novels you know the, the relationship between cowboys and indians is just a whole different one from the one that you see in hollywood movies it's very it's, a, it's very sexualized and for want of a better word costume that both cowboys and indians wear are just fantastic i mean there's the you know there are the cowboys and there's super tight pants with their boots and their spurs, you know, and the, and the Indians wearing their, their breech clubs and very little else. And, you know, it's gorgeously fetishistic and very, very sexy. Uh, and again, as I said, something that you see an enormous amount of in gay erotic novels of that era. Um, the novelist uh, Richard Amory wrote a series of, of, of three novels. Song of the Loon, Listen the Loon Sings, and Song of Aaron, which are all about cowboys and Native Americans. And uh, the first one is called, I believe, a pastoral in some number of parts. So clearly it aspires to be something more than like a dirty novel. It aspires to be a kind of poetry that takes its cue from the eroticism of the meeting of European men and Native American men. And it's, it's, it's quite fascinating and frankly very sexy. And those books are very well written. Richard Amory was a really terrific writer. Uh, also a gay man who came out of the closet very late. By the time he acknowledged gay, he was married and had four children. Uh, but, but finally realized that this was all a, a facade for him. This was not the life that he wanted to be living. Um, it's also why he has an estate that actually controls those books, which is quite rare for uh, gay adult novels of that period, because most people who wrote them didn't have children and didn't have a state, but uh, the Richard Amory books do. So, and one of the things that I really, really would like to see is the, uh, the softcore porn film that was made from the first of his Song of the Loon books. And so help me, I have never, ever seen anywhere so much as a trace of it, except that I know it exists because there's an anecdote in one in a book by a friend of Amory's. I went with him to see this film, which was Amory, Amory hated because he felt that it was vulgar and crude and not at all what he had in mind when he wrote those books. But So that film exists, and I would love to see it. I would just be fascinated. We've talked a little bit about Romans. We've talked a little bit about cowboys. I mean, I don't think it's any coincidence that even something like Westworld, uh, which was, you know, obviously based on a Crichton work, but uh, has new life, is exploring that kind of fetishistic stuff as well. I mean, the Rodrigo Santoro character looks like he's stepped right out of some sort of softcore porn most of the time. Just bad boy, uh, cowboy is just, uh, and then of course the. The, all of the prostitutes and just the way that they're over feminized, over feminized is, you know, it's the stuff of fantasy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And Westworld completely understands that again, that that whole world of the old West for people now is completely a product of fantasies and not all of them are sexual fantasies, 
but a lot of them are. And they and you know, they have nothing to do with what the real West was like. They have to do with images that were first, you know, written in, in dime novels and sent back east that, you know, gave people an an image of this wild, fascinating place where anything went and created a, a fantasy of the old West endures to this day. You know, I often have troubles with biopics and I have to say that I really enjoyed Tom of Finland and it did everything that I wanted it to do uh, and more. And it was nice that I had daddy in the muscle Academy kind of as that counterpoint to be able to compare. Cause there's too often when I'm watching a biopic and I sit there and I think, God, I just wish there was a documentary. Why couldn't they have taken the, the money that they spent on this thing and made a documentary about it instead? So, I mean, no offense to, any of our listeners, but things like autofocus or man in the moon. I mean, it's just like, I would rather see a really good documentary about Bob Crane. I'd rather see a really good documentary about Andy Kaufman rather than these like really gussied up biopics. At least in this case, we have both. And I think that Tom of Finland really stands on its own. It does a great job without needing, you know, it didn't leave me with a thousand questions like other biopics do. And it was able to tell a story in a movie fashion, but also give me enough fact-based uh, items that I didn't feel like I was being cheated. And, you know, I agree. I'm somebody who would always, I think, rather see a documentary simply because I don't want to be watching something and trying to guess how much of this is fact and how much of this is somebody's interpretation of it. Though even in a documentary, clearly there's an interpretation going on by the filmmaker who decides what goes in and what doesn't, you know, what, what's fun and what is operating kind of in the background. That's just the nature of the beast. But I love documentaries because, yes, I really would like to hear people really talk about what was going on at that time. I want to see people saying, oh, well, you know, Tom, he did all these great drawings, but, you know, he's actually really kind of a shy guy or whatever. It doesn't matter what. But I'm fascinated to actually hear people who were part of a time and a place and something that was going on rather than see images that somebody else has interpreted and cut away all of the stuff that doesn't fit the vision that they decided is interesting to them. Right. Like as I was watching that uh, Daddy in the Muscle Academy, which is just so much fun to say, by the way, every time I say it. Uh, but um, when I was watching it and um, saw the uh, the guy Dirk uh, Dunkirk, I believe is his name, the story that he was telling seemed very much like he ended up as the Doug character and maybe an amalgamation of a few other real people were kind of moved into that Doug character. You know, that is generally the case with fiction because the fact is real life is messy. And real life, your real life, if you want to tell a story about it, is one that the first thing you have to do is just pare stuff away from it. Things that happened, things that had an influence on you, but ultimately things that don't really contribute to a linear narrative about you or about somebody else, whatever this particular film or book or anything is about. And, you know, often the things that you pair away have interesting little details in them that as a viewer or reader, you just love. You want them to be in there. Sometimes they're things that seem to contradict what's being said. Often they're things that support what's being said, 
but there's just a specificity to them that's absolutely fascinating. Again, this is one of those nature of the beast things. If you make a documentary, a great deal of what you do is, is choose what you show and what you leave out. That's just the way it is. So, Maitland, what have you been up to when you're not having your knees replaced? Well, let me tell you, that's taken up a good deal of my time. Knee replacement is just, it's fascinating and horrifying at the same time. I mean, I am glad that I actually had my first surgery before I looked at any pictures of, of what knee surgery is like. You know, it's funny, years ago, like 25 years ago, when I was working at City Ballet, I had house seats that I was able to sell to people you know, who were just friends of the ballet or whatever. And a friend of somebody said, oh, you know, I, I know this guy who's, you know, he's an osteopathic surgeon, really loves the ballet. Do you think that you could sell him a pair of house seats for something? And I was like, yeah, sure, send him over. And he, in return, sent me a videotape of doing knee surgery. And let me tell you, it beat the hell out of the last 10 horror movies that I had seen. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Exactly. It was absolutely horrifying. One of the things he said about knee surgery is, you know, people think of surgery as being this really delicate thing. But he said, knee surgery? That's construction work. It's all hammers and shovels. <laughs> That's not what you want to think about when you think about what somebody's going to be doing to your knees when you're unconscious and have absolutely no Yeah. So, and I, and I did it twice. <laughs> so, have you been able to work on, on any of your book projects or anything while you're recovering? Um, yes, actually, the big thing that I'm, I've been working on recently is I've, I've just signed a contract to work with a company called Riverdale Avenue Books, which is a small publishing company, but is a great deal bigger than 120 Days Books, which, let's face it, is just me and a computer. And they are going to republish all of the vintage gay erotic novels that I have published so far using the Create Space model. So that will be seven books, starting with Maneater, which will be available in November. So everybody go out and buy this fabulous new copy of, of Maneater. It's a great, great book, and it'll be in a really beautiful new package. Oh, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It really is. It's exciting. I mean, I think I did the absolute best I could with the with the publishing model that I was using but Riverdale Avenue Books will, will be able to do a little bit more, certainly more outreach, certainly more, more uh, social media contacts that will make people aware of these books. And so it's really exciting to me. And it's, uh, it's, it's great, frankly. So I'm thrilled about it. Have you been doing any more uh, liner notes or audio commentaries on things? I have not done any of those things recently. And I must confess that part of the reason is that this knee stuff has, has laid me low. I mean, I, I didn't think that it would, and um, I was actually talking to my today because my first, my first surgery, was, which was my right knee, was actually remarkably easy and remarkably, I won't say it was painless, but it was remarkably not painful. And my left knee, which I did second, is absolutely horrible, frankly. It hurts a lot. And they got my surgeon on the phone and said, you know, Dr. Chen, here's, you know, here's what's going on. And he said, okay, you know what? I kind of wish that you'd done your left knee first because what you're describing to me is pretty much the normal level of, of pain and discomfort that people have when they have a knee replacement. And your right knee was astonishingly easy. So I think it's set up 
the wrong expectations for you, and that's why you're having such difficulties with the knee now. Because it's the way knee replacement surgeries usually hurt, and your first one didn't. So I am trying to reconcile myself to that, and that it actually, you know, it, it actually was a peace of mind thing to have that conversation because I now know there's nothing wrong with my knee, and there's nothing wrong with how much it hurts. It just happened that the other one barely hurt at all, and I got off really easy, so it didn't prepare me for what's going on now. So that's the way it is, but I am not saying this in any way to discourage people from having knee replacement surgery, because if your knees are in such bad shape that you need it, it's really worth doing, and you know, there's a, there is a recover, a recovery period, as there is with any kind of surgery, but in the end, and I can already see it with my right which happens to have recovered much faster, it's absolutely great. It really is. To have a really damaged kneecap replaced with a knee replacement, where there is not a kneecap at all, there's just a, a functioning up and down hinge, basically, in the knee. And it's great. It really is great. So have that surgery if your doctor says you need it. Okay. And I say it'll be okay in the end. <laughs> well, as long as it's Maitland McDonough uh, endorsed, we're okay. Right. I, I, I'm going to get a little stamp made that I can stamp on the ads and say Maitland McDonough endorsed. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projection-boot.com where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.